renowned scholar Michael Gorman examines the important Pauline theme of participation in Christ, a topic of great interest in New Testament circles and one that is central to Paul's theology and spirituality. Building on his previous work on the topic, Gorman carefully examines participation in Christ in Paul's letters. His book explores this theme across the letters and includes in-depth studies of key texts such as Galatians 2, 2 Corinthians 5, and Philippians 2. Gorman also explores the contemporary significance of participating in Christ for Christian life and ministry, arguing that it has wide implications for the life of the believer. Throughout the book, Gorman insightfully unpacks the many theological, spiritual, and pastoral dimensions of participation in Christ and shows its close connection to such related themes as cruciformity, resurrection, justification, theosis, mission, and apocalyptic. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Michael J. Gorman about his new book, Participating in Christ, Exploration in Paul's Theology and Spirituality. Dr. Gorman is the Raymond E. Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. He formerly served as the Dean of the Ecumenical Institute of Theology at St. Mary's. Gorman is the author of numerous books, including Cruciformity, Paul's Narrative, Spirituality of the Cross, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, Scripture and its Interpretation, and Elements of Biblical Exegesis. Dr. Gorman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a great pleasure and joy to be here with you. Yeah, I I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I didn't become a a really uh, serious Christian believer until about the age of 15 or 16. So even though I kind of grew up in the church, I had never read the Bible until my middle teen years. And I decided uh, in light of that to go off to college. I was planning to be a French teacher and and majored in French. And one of the requirements at my college was to do a second biblical, sorry, to do a second language. And I said, well, I'd like to learn Greek so I can read the New Testament in Greek. And I got hooked. I started reading Greek. I started dreaming in Greek. (laughs) Uh, And even though I did major in French, I did the equivalent of a minor in, in biblical studies and ran into uh, the great privilege of meeting people like Gordon Fee and having a class with him while I was in college, meeting and hearing Bruce Metzger lecture when I was in college. And before I knew it, I had decided that this was the uh, the field for me, the discipline I wanted to pursue. So it, it really has a lot to do with the fact that I'm con- I was committed even then to the idea that the scripture brings life and we, we can pass that life on to others by carefully reading, preaching, teaching, and interpreting the scriptures. Yeah, and you are an amazing model of doing that. So part of how you do that is, is in this book, Participating in Christ. How did you come to write this book? Like, What inspired these essays? Yeah, well... The book is, in one sense, a collection of essays, and in another sense, it is a coherent argument, as you said in the intro. Uh, the The theme of participation has really been central to my work for a very long time, all the way back to my first sort of uh, writing about Paul at the uh, in the papers I did in seminary and graduate school and my dissertation, and then 
in my first book on cruciformity, which is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a book that I wrote, my first book on Paul, a published book, that is. And um, the theme of participation was was central to that book, became increasingly important to me as I uh, began working in more depth in some of the passages that I uh, considered in that book, which was quite a quite a bit of a survey of all of Paul's letters and uh, systematically organizing them into certain themes. I became, I became convinced that I needed to go in more depth into certain passages. Already I had become uh, very committed to the idea that Philippians 2 tells us the master story from Paul's point of view. So I'd already done a lot of work in Philippians 2. And over the years, probing in, in essay form into in papers at conferences and presentations, Probing in depth into a passage became an exciting way of um, of working on text for me. So, uh, in a couple of books and and then in this sense, a couple of um, conferences and other places where I did essays that became published in journals, it seemed that these themes uh, flowed together very nicely. And so, hooking them up one after another in a sequence that made sense just seemed like the right way to go. So that's that's more or less how this book came into being. Yeah, so these themes have flowed together, and uh, this book is in two parts. Part one begins with nine essays that that seek to show how significant participation really is in Paul's theology and spirituality. So in, in chapter one, you begin with 13 propositions in four sections, the cross, cruciformity, dying and rising with Christ, and then mission. Why, why do you start the book like this? Well, the first chapter is really an overview of the theme of participation. Biblical scholars have been working with this theme for a very long time, actually almost 2,000 years. But more recently, modern biblical scholars have, have seen the importance of this theme. And yet a lot of people aren't really familiar with it. So I thought the best way to start would be to sort of summarize what I've been saying about participation for the last 20 years or so, and then also give an overview that would introduce people to the themes that get developed in more depth throughout the book. So uh, actually, I I gave this paper, this chapter rather, as a presentation at a a couple of different seminaries, including uh, a presentation at Cambridge in one of the theological colleges there. And every time I did this for three or four years, People said, wow, it's so great to see all this one place in a kind of organized way. So I thought this is the right way to start the book and get people involved in the topic so they can see the reason for exploring it in more depth. Right. Yeah. And that chapter functions to do that very well. Um, So then you say at the start of chapter two that, quote, the church and Christian theology are facing three major questions across cultures. One, who or what is God? And who or what is the church? And then two, is the church an arm of the state or of a particular culture or an embodiment of that kind of power? And then three, what does it mean to be fully human in a world full of unchecked political and personal power? How do you think that the cross of Jesus Christ provides answers to these questions? Yeah, it's a great question. Maybe if I back up for a moment and, and say that kind of what's behind those propositions or those uh, claims is 
the significance of power and the, the word power, the notion of power, the practice of power in the world. Um, when I wrote Cruciformity, I took the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love and developed each of them from the perspective of the cross in Paul. But I also added a fourth chapter on what we might call a non-virtue, a vice, or at least something that's neutral and can be used either way, namely power. And I, and I wrote about the way Paul sees power from a cruciform perspective, a cross-shaped perspective. And in, in the course of writing that book and in the course of thinking through these things over the last two decades, it seems to me that the notion of power is critical to the way humans understand the world and how they act in the world. And that relates to our conception of God. What does it mean for God to be all-powerful? What does it mean for the church to be involved or not involved in secular power, and for that matter, in, in its own power, ecclesial power of various kinds? And, and finally, what does it mean for human beings to, to live within this context of uh, whatever the power of God is and then whatever these other kinds of powers are? What does it mean to exercise power appropriately, assuming that all of us have some degree of, of power? So... Um, the, the the three topics there, I do think, come together in the cross of Jesus Christ, because for Paul, and I think for us as Christians, the cross reveals in a profound way who God really is. So we often talk about the cross as revealing who Christ is, but Paul's point of view is we see in the cross the power and the wisdom of God. Well, if you see the attributes of God, you see God. You, you see what God is like. So um, the cross reveals who, who God is. The cross reveals, obviously, who Christ is. And if that's the case, uh, if we live in Christ and Christ lives in us, then the cross ought to reveal um, what it means to be the church. What kind of power is the power of the cross? What kind of power is the power of God revealed in the cross? What kind of power is the church going to be involved in and exercise? And then finally, on the human level, how does the cross of Christ uh, inform the way I understand uh, my power, either the use of it or the rejection of it in certain circumstances, or the nuancing of it, uh, the, the critique of how I understand the, the cultural understanding of, of power? So uh, from beginning to end, it seems to me, the cross exemplifies the meaning of power, not only for us and for the church, but even for God. It's right. And yeah, that was a very helpful way to attack that question that we get to see God in, in the, the cross and his power there. So then you move. You may. Sorry, go oh, ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say one of the things about this book that's a little bit um, uh, unique, I su- as unique, I suppose, I've invented a couple of words to try to explain the cross is revelatory of these things. It's the power of the cross. So we all know words like theophany and Christophany, but now I have the word ecclesiophany, revealing the, the church, and even uh, the, the neologism anthrophony or anthropophany. What does it mean to be anthropos? What does it mean to be human, to, to exemplify the power of the cross in our daily lives? So um, those are words that, that sound kind of strange at first, but they're trying to, to connect these these dots of the cross and these various aspects of power. That's right. Yeah. And I think creating those terms is a really helpful way to, 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 to teach that and to use those themes. So then we move to chapter three 
which begins as a response to some scholars who want to use the terms resurrection form and anastiform, anastiform, along with cruciform. Um, so in referring, you know, in this discussion of participation in Christ in Paul's thought, what is your response to, to those particular terms? Well, the term cruciform simply means cross-shaped. It's, it's a metaphorical term borrowed from archaeology, not archaeology, but from um, buildings, uh, like a, a church cathedral being cross-shaped, um, architecture, excuse me. And uh, so because people have sometimes accused me of overemphasizing the cross, they have, uh, a few of them have said, we need to more put more emphasis on the resurrection. And since we can speak, uh, according to Paul, in terms like cruciform, let's bring the resurrection into that and also call it the life in Christ, participating in Christ, resurrectiform, or to, to coin the uh, word from Greek, anastasia, anastasis, resurrection, anastiform. So I, I, I puzzled over this when the when the critiques were raised, and I and I was willing to admit that the resurrection maybe needed more emphasis in my own work, and I began to do that a few years ago. Um, I had never sidelined. I didn't think I'd ever sidelined the resurrection, but I, I, I would admit to focusing on the cross. And yet the term resurrectiform seemed to me to be the wrong term. It, it implies a, a, a parallel between being shaped by the cross into a pattern that's like Christ's self-giving in his incarnation and death. And resurrectiform would imply that our life in Christ now is also uh, enjoying, if you will, the benefits of the future resurrected state. Uh, someone recently called it gloriform. You know, they're already glorified, so to speak. And I do think there's a sense for Paul in which we are glorified already in the present. But it's a it's an odd glory. It's the glory of the cross. It's cross shaped glory, and so I got concerned that that could be misunderstood as a kind of triumphalism, and perhaps an over anticipation of of the future. So what I propose instead is to talk about resurrection infused cruciformity, or resurrectional cruciformity. That is to say, yes, the power of the resurrection does work for Paul in, in our life in Christ now, but it works paradoxically in the shape of the cross. So the shape, the form is always cross-shaped. The power that allows us to live in a cross-shaped way is the power of the resurrected Jesus, not just the power of resurrection in general, but the power of the living Christ. This becomes really evident in 2 Corinthians, where Paul, especially in chapters 4 and 5, speaks about his own ministry of, of completely an ongoing way experiencing the dying of Christ in his own life, in his own body. And yet, ironically and paradoxically, it's that very life of, of self-giving love that uh, is shaped in the shape of the cross that gives life to himself and gives life to others. So I, I want to I maintain that paradox. So I don't want to use the term uh, resurrectiform, but the idea of resurrection infusing the cross and the cross-shaped life in Christ, I'm absolutely on board with. Yeah, that, and that is fascinating. And I, I think that that is a helpful clarification um, in that chapter. So chapter four then is a participatory exegesis of Philippians 2.5, where you argue that it should be rendered, um, cultivate this mindset 
the way of thinking, acting, feeling in your community, which is in fact a community in the Messiah, Jesus. Could you explain how you understand the sense of Philippians 2.5? Sure. Well, I think everybody who knows that text knows that Philippians 2.5 is the bridge between Paul's exhortations to the community in Philippi to live in the fellowship of the Spirit in a way that looks out for the needs of others and is not self-aggrandizing uh, and so forth. That that text then bridges into the poem or the hymn in 2.6 to 11, uh, although or because Christ was in the form of God, he did not um, count equality with God as something to exploit, but emptied himself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So people have debated for a long time how to how to understand that transition between the first part and the second part, the, the poem. There have been two main interpretations. One has been, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. That's what I call the the imitative uh, interpretation. So imitate Jesus, have this mind in you, and be like him. Imitate Jesus' mindset, his his way of thinking. We'll come back to the thinking, acting, and so forth. Um, The other main interpretation has been, that's putting too much emphasis on imitation, whereas Paul wants to emphasize being in Christ. So the other interpretation has been what I call the locative. Um, have this mind which you have in Christ or some some form of that. And you can see various translations that take one or the other of these uh, views. And the argument of the chapter is that both of those views have something to offer, but neither of them is 100% correct. So I want to translate with the, the locative, as Paul always says, in Christ means in Christ. In Christ here meaning in the community. So we live in Christ, and it's while we're in him that this mind, this uh, way of thinking, acting, and feeling, and there I'm borrowing the language of Steve Fowle in his commentary on Philippians, um, that in the community, community is being defined as being in Christ. So in, in your community, you could say, the words actually say, have this mind in y'all, and y'all are in Christ. Uh, I like to use that y'all, that Southern saying, because Americans, especially most Westerners who speak English, forget that many of Paul's yous are plural, and most of his exhortations are plural. Even here in 2, 1 to 4, they are. So the, the, the translation I'm offering focuses on the multidimensional character of thinking. It's not just an attitude. It's an attitude with consequences. And it's about not imitating Jesus, but participating in him as a community so that we embody that story. We become a living exegesis of Philippians 2, 6 to 11. And that's what Philippians 2, 1 to 4 tells us. In the fellowship of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, we become a living communal exegesis of of the poem about Jesus. And that's a powerful statement. It's also a very difficult one. We can't simply imitate Jesus. We need him to live in us and we in, in him, that kind of mutual indwelling. That's one of the important parts about participation. So you can see I, I get pretty passionate about this poem and about this translation. Uh, I actually offered this translation in the very first paper I ever wrote on Philippians 2 when I was a first-year seminary student. And the professor and I had a conversation about it afterwards, and he said, good idea. I've been offering it here and there for years ever since. 
this is the first time for me to argue it as fully and, and hopefully finally as I possibly can. I hope it gets into translations one of these days. Yeah, and it's a fascinating chapter and, and definitely a, a great exposition of that verse and how it bridges you know, those exhortations and then that poem or hymn. Um, Thank you. So, so if you can convince the NIV and the NRSV translators on that, I'd be grateful. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, so then you examine the shape of life in the spirit, according to Paul's letter to the Galatians in the next chapter. Uh, could you explain what you mean by the phrase, the apocalyptic new covenant? How does, how does that relate to participation? Yeah. Well, most people uh, who follow Pauline studies are probably aware that there's different schools of interpretation, uh, various ways of, of seeing the big picture of Paul. And in, in some sense, there's competition between those two schools of thought. One being those who emphasize with Tom Wright and others the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the story of Israel and the story, story of Israel and the story of Christ and Paul, and then others who take a more uh, an attitude of more discontinuity, often called the apocalyptic school of thought, focusing on the divine incursion unexpectedly into the human condition which is the apocalypse, the revelation of God's uh, divine saving activity. Now, those schools are often thought to be in competition with each other. Uh, and, and I'm arguing in this chapter, along with some others, that they're not in competition at all, that what is in continuity is that the Old Testament prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, had promised a new day with a new exodus and a new covenant covenant in which the spirit would be given, poured out on people. That's a participatory image, a liquid image, if you will. And also that the spirit and the law would be poured or put into people, into their hearts to enliven them. So that's very interesting. We have the spirit on people, poured onto them, and we have the spirit in people. Well, to me, that's where Paul got the idea of the mutual indwelling of the spirit in Christ in us, Christ in us and us in Christ the spirit in us and us in the spirit. And so I want to focus on this Pauline uh, theme of the new covenant, which the word doesn't appear very often, only once in 1 Corinthians and once in 2 Corinthians, the phrase that is. But the image is there throughout because of this gift of the spirit. And yet what, what the spirit does and how the spirit comes and how the spirit is connected to the revelation of Christ on the cross is completely unexpected. So there's the discontinuity. The continuity is the new covenant is the gift of God, of the Spirit, uh, through the Messiah's uh, life, death, and resurrection. The uniqueness of it is precisely the character of that life, death, and resurrection, which is unthought of and un unprepared for um, by the prophets who could have never imagined that God would be, would be revealed in, um, in the death of the Messiah in spite of Isaiah 53, which of course is not about God in say, but about God's servant. So uh, I, I want to keep together these two aspects of Paul, the apocalyptic, the unexpected, surprising invasion of God. And yet, ironically, it, it, it uh, fulfills the promise of the new covenant. It's interesting, my, my PhD uh, supervisor was Martin DeBoer, one of the foremost proponents of the 
uh, apocalyptic school of thought. And he told me one time that the great Lewis Martin, J. Lewis Martin, actually had a law, a rule against using the word covenant in any discussions of Paul when he was involved. I thought that was kind of interesting, especially since almost the very last thing that Martin wrote, that is Lou Martin wrote, was an essay arguing almost exactly what I just said, but never using the word covenant. <laughs> right. So, so those, um, you know, both the unexpected and the, you know, the expected per se thought in, in Paul really shapes, you know, how he, he approaches this. And yeah, I think that's, that's a great way to, um, to talk about this new covenant. Uh, if you want to use the term covenant. Um, so then, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, if Paul, if Paul does, honestly, if Paul uses the term twice and there are other places where he alludes to the idea without using the term, I don't think we can talk about Paul yeah, without using the yeah. term covenant. So anyway, I would, I would definitely agree. So then you turn to the topic of justification in chapters six, seven, and eight in the texts of Galatians 2, 15 through 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, and then in Romans. Why do you argue that justification is both participatory and transformative? I'm just uh, repeating Paul. I don't have to do any arguing. <laughs> um, I'm obviously uh, only half serious there, but when you're half serious, you're half serious. I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty clear from from Paul's own words, that whatever, however we understand justification, uh, and, it's, and it's a complex and multivalent reality, it is something that transforms. It is not simply a, a verdict that has no consequence. When a, when, even when a judge pronounces a person even if we use the, that, that kind of a typical Protestant juridical language, by the way, I am Protestant, not Catholic, even though I teach at a Catholic seminary. Um, when, when we see that, in, even in a modern courtroom, when, when the judge pronounces you acquitted, you're a changed person. You're, you're not, you know, you, you can take off the orange jumpsuit. You, you can now do things you couldn't do before. Um, you don't just have a new status. You have a new reality. There's been a transformation. But when Paul speaks about, in various passages about justification, he uses language that is more than a juridical set of, of ideas or words. So, for instance, in Galatians 2, uh, the words of, of justification there are paired very closely with the idea of dying and rising with Christ. So I argue that that passage is about justification from beginning to end. Now, others would say, Gorman, you're confusing proximity with synonymity. You're saying some two things that are close together are synonymous rather than simply, you know, neighbors, if you will. Doug Moo, for instance, has argued that against my reading. Um, but I think if you read Paul carefully and, and maybe read my essay carefully, uh, you'll see that Dying and rising with Christ is exactly what Paul means by justification. Co-crucifixion and co-resurrection is the essence of justification. Or to turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, when, when we get to the end of that passage, where the, the idea of justification is present, even though the word is about righteousness rather than the verb form, um, he, Christ, became what we are 
so that we could become what he is, to paraphrase from later interpreters of Paul like Irenaeus, or to quote, quote Paul himself, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him, notice the participatory language, that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. As Richard Hayes likes to say, Paul did not say that we might know about the righteousness of God, that we might receive the righteousness of God, that we might believe in the righteousness of God. No, all those things are good things, but that's not what Paul says. What does he say? That we might become the righteousness of God. We might be transformed into something that participates in the very character of God, resembles the very character of God. Uh, So in other words, justification is not simply about a, a, a verdict. Um, lots of people I could quote here, including some Reformed interpreters who, who say more or less what I have just said, but use slightly different language. Uh, so I, I think there's a move to understand those texts more in line with, with participation uh, in Christ and transformation, uh, whether it's Christ in us, Galatians 2, or us in Christ, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It's a both and for Paul. And when we are baptized and faithed into Christ, something happens. Right. Yeah. That's, thank you for clarifying that. I think, um, yeah, that, that really does clear up a lot. And I, um, I just recommend those chapters for people to go read and learn a lot from for sure. Um, so then in chapter nine, you advocate for the term theosis, which is a loaded term. You define it as transformative participation in the canonic cruciform character of God through spirit-enabled conformity to the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected, glorified Christ. Could you just give us maybe a quick overview as to why you think this term is useful? Well, the, the term is controversial, as you indicated rightly, Jonathan. Um, I, I suppose I think the term is useful because it captures something that's at the heart of what Paul is up to. And that is to say that we uh, humans have the opportunity, the privilege, the possibility of participating in the very divine life, the life that is the life, as we as would say in, in Trinitarian terms, of Father, Son, and Spirit together. And I think Paul is a very... Uh, early Trinitarian theologian, if you will, in, in more than just an embryonic way. But anyhow, so, <coughs> pardon me. So um, the term theosis implies that we are in a are in the privileged uh, arena of participating in the life of God as, as a process of becoming more and more like God. Now, most Christians would agree with everything I've just said, even if they don't use the term theosis, that we get to participate in God's life and that in so doing, we become more and more like God. And when I was working on the first book that I used this term in, which was Inhabiting the Cruciform God, back in the in the middle 2000s, I coined a word. I, I argued that cruciformity is ultimately theoformity. So in other words, being shaped like the cross or being shaped like Christ on the cross is ultimately about being shaped 
in the form of God. And as soon as I created that term, I came to the realization, why should I create a new term when there's a term that exists in the Christian tradition, namely the term theosis? Um, so I, I think that term helps us understand two things about being in Christ. A, it's an ongoing process from faith and baptism to final glorification. It's one continuous process. And it's a process not only of becoming like Christ, which it is, but therefore also becoming like God. And that's what I think the usefulness of the term is. I will say in the book, and I have said it in various places, I don't think the term is an absolute necessity to use, but I think it's very helpful. I think it's completely appropriate and very helpful. I don't know if you want to push back on that a little bit. It's, for many people, it's a it's a brand new term. Right. No, absolutely. And I learned about it in a Protestant, um, in a you know, in a Protestant tradition. And yeah, I just wonder if you would differentiate it from like um, deification, or would you say that they're kind of one and the same? For for me, those two terms are basically interchangeable. Um, the, the, there's a lot of both Greek terms and English terms that have been used to uh, uh, express this theological and spiritual reality, and and none of them is perfect. Um, there are various interpretations of theosis or deification that make it sound like and this is a great fear that people have, rightly so, make it sound like we stop being human and someday become literal gods, small g or even large g, uppercase g. And uh, in that sense, cross the line between creature and creator. And no proponent of orthodox, small o or large o, orthodox Christian theology and theosis would ever say that. Uh, but but some people think that term deification implies that more. And, and, and maybe one other thing to say about this is uh, because there's a variety of interpretations of theosis and deification in the Christian tradition, I prefer to use what I think is a pretty generic, although very cruciform, understanding of theosis. And uh, I don't use, for instance, personally, I don't use the language of energies, which sometimes occurs in the uh, uppercase O Orthodox tradition. Uh, I don't give. I don't. I don't see this as a doctrine as much as I do as a theme and a handy term. So I don't want to get too specific about it. But I do think it's important for us to see this uh, continuity, and for Protestants in particular, to begin to break down the the division between justification and sanctification. And the term theosis helps to do that, to see the, the whole um, entrance into and being in Christ as uh, a process of, uh, of, of ongoing and unending um, transformation. Yeah, well, and I, I've really appreciated that. And I think that chapter nine is clear and helpful and you define your terms very clearly. So I think that um, for those interested, it will be very useful uh, for them. Um, so then lastly, um, in part two, you spend two chapters kind of turning from this theological study in Pauline literature 
um, to then reflections on how your investigations and conclusions impact the contemporary church. So how do you see a theology of participation changing the modern church? Thanks for another great question. Um, The last two chapters of the book are my attempt to say this is not just about Paul's theology or just about understanding Paul, but it's it's understanding what it means to be the people of God, to be the church in the contemporary uh, world. And the the two chapters, the the last one of the book uh, is on the resurrection. I'll come back to that in a moment, but maybe just to say something about the first chapter. Many people may remember that uh, the late great Martin Luther King preached a sermon uh, on Paul's letter to the, the church in America, in which he primarily focused on the, the racism that existed in the church. And they preached this sermon a number of times in the 50s and 60s. And I was partly inspired by that idea, not, not as much about the content, although I agreed with the content. I, I think the sermon is wonderful. But wanted to take that that genre, if you will, and try to update it for today. So I I wrote a a letter to the American Church using this uh, Pauline themes and trying to specify, especially the notion that um, we as the Church in the West have become very individualistic. We have become very um, culturally bound and influenced by our church in unhealthy ways, our culture, excuse me, in unhealthy ways. And as a result, we have failed to live into the story of, uh, of Christ crucified and resurrected that we find in the Apostle Paul. So I take not only Philippians 2, but other passages of Paul and try to say that what it means for us as the church today is to be an alternative way of being human in the world, a contrast society, as some people have called it, to be, as I mentioned earlier, a living exegesis of the of the poem in Paul. And um, I don't any I don't really like the term countercultural anymore, but I like the term that some other people have coined alter cultural to be an alternative culture. And to do that in a in a way that is um, rather political, not again in the sense uh, the culture usually uses that term of supporting certain causes or being you know more Republican or more Republican or more Democrat, but rather in the sense of of a city, uh, a polis that we are a we are a community that lives in certain ways or strives to live in certain ways, and we do that by being in Christ together. Um, to go back to that community image, uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, 12 and 13, many Protestant Christians like to, to, uh, to quote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, sometimes we forget that the next part of that verse says, for it is God who is at work among you or within you. So in you is the way it's often translated, but it could just as well, and I think better be translated among you. So um, the way I like to, to paraphrase or actually translate that verse is um, 
not to work out your salvation as if you could earn it, but to put it into practice, put into practice this corporate salvation. Why? Because it is God who is at work among you, enabling y'all to be this new community that's shaped like the story of Jesus for the sake of the salvation of the world. So uh, to me, that's what it means to be in Christ and to live this alternative communal lifestyle, if you will. So lots more that I could say about that. And then I end the book on the resurrection because to go back to the earlier point, even though I don't think we should talk about a resurrectiform life, I do think that we are called and enabled to live a resurrection infused life. And without the resurrection, as Paul says, let us eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Um, Let's go home and give up on all of this. So uh, that's why I end the book with a pretty strong uh, defense uh, not only of the of the resurrection but also of our participation in the resurrected life of Jesus. That's right. Yeah, and I, I'm just so glad that you ended with a a section like that. And and I, yeah, I appreciate those those thoughts. I think that would be very helpful for those trying to synthesize the theoretical with the practical. Um, so thank you so much for donating your time to us, Dr. Gorman. Um, would you mind just sharing with us what project you're working on next? Well, yeah, sure. I've got a few things going on. Um, some some uh, people may be familiar with my little book, uh, Elements of Biblical Exegesis, which has been in print for almost 20 years. And it's going into a third edition, which will come out, uh, God willing, next fall. And so I've got to... I've been working pretty hard on that for the last uh, while. I don't know exactly how long and hope to finish that up by Christmas so I can move on. I'm working on a commentary on Romans. um, That's pretty brief commentary as commentaries on Romans go. And uh, that's, that's supposed to come out, be done in about a year and come out in about two years. So I've got a lot of that done. And there's always the, uh, the essay, the, short thing here and there, but those are the two book projects I'm working on at the moment. And uh, I've also got uh, a small book of uh, non-Pauline perspectives coming out probably again in about a year or so that uh, we hope, I hope will be a way of saying that uh, I can read outside of the uh, 13 letters of Paul. Well, great. I'm I'm excited to see those when they come out. Um, so for our listeners, uh, you know, I really think Dr. Gorman has added a very helpful work that dives deep into Paul's theology and spirituality. So if you're interested in Paul, you're interested in this book. Thanks for listening to this episode in New Books and Biblical Studies. Until next time, I'm your host, Jonathan Wright. Take up and read. <laughs>